Hey, welcome to a new episode of Campus Chats. My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the lecturers at UCU. I teach economics. I'm also one of the tutors. And I'm here today with one of my colleagues, uh, Gamza Avci. Gamza, could you maybe introduce yourself? All right. <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm one of the political science teachers and I am office-wise the neighbor of Kim. And <laughs> I uh, have been teaching politics at the college since 2003, so quite a while. Um, yeah, that's me. Um, okay. So if you're in lock on the first floor, you'll see me uh, wandering around and in between classes. Okay. And you're originally from Turkey, right? Yeah. Well, I'm originally Turkish. Yeah. But I'm born in Germany, so... Um, but I am uh, Turkish. Yeah. And you attended university in Turkey as well? I did, but I um, I was born in Germany. I uh, studied there until the age of 16, and then I went back to Turkey, finished high school there, the German high school, and then I studied at the American University in Istanbul. And after that, I went for graduate school, uh, first in the States at the University of Georgia, and then I did another master's at the London School of Economics, and then my PhD uh, again in the States at the University of Georgia. Okay. And why political science? Why political science? I find it exciting. It always is. I mean, it can be very depressing, but I, it excites me. It's something um, that I love following and thinking about. I think that's um, somehow I've always been drawn to it. And I think it's also a bit of a politics was always a big thing in the family as well. Always talked about over dinner, after dinner, <laughs> while watching television. So it's it's been always part of my life in a way, uh, I feel, and uh, studying it came very naturally that way. Yeah. And is there a particular topic in political science that's sort of your specialty? Um, two topics that are, that I consider, well, specialty is a big word, but I, that I like to do research on and that I've worked on. One is immigration and migrants in Western Europe or basically in advanced industrialized countries and uh, the European Union and specifically enlargement of the European Union and Euroscepticism, those kind of things. Okay. Are things that I'm interested in and like doing research on. Yeah. And if you look back on uh, the research that you have done, is there one article in particular that you really enjoyed working on? Um, I guess the, the very first article that I published after I finished my PhD um, and it was on migration and the different categories of migrants and, um, and the boundaries and uh, the difficulty of establishing boundaries or um, to the difficulties of differentiating between refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, labor migrants, uh, economic migrants, basically, uh, and all of that. It was a discussion of, on the different categories and how they get blurred and how... Uh, and so it was, uh, it was published in a journal uh, on law, uh, but it was more of a political take on it. And yeah, uh, yeah that's, the, that's the one I liked looking back on, I guess. But I hadn't talked and thought about it in a long time, I guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> what type of methodology do you use for that? Are you into it? My PhD was quantitative, I have to... Um, Admit, um, it was pooled cross-sectional time series, what I used in my PhD. But after that, uh, it was mostly qualitative uh, that I have done. There's one other quantitative article that I've published with a friend of mine, but mostly 
qualitative. It's either documents or news or statements that I analyze, um, depending on the topic. Yeah. So um, I can do both, but as it happens, it's been mostly qualitative since I graduated. Yeah. And if you, because this is such a politically sensitive topic as well, especially when we're talking about migrants and the position of migrants in, in society. What's the biggest misconception that you see people have um, about those groups? Yeah, I think that I'm not sure whether that really answers your question, but what bugs me very often is that everyone is put in the, and it, I guess it's the same with that article, that everyone is put in the same box. Uh, that we don't differentiate and that we uh, operate very often on the basis of cliches when we talk about migrants. When we talk about Turkish migrants in the Netherlands, uh, there's always a certain image that has been reinforced by the media and the rhetoric and the narrative um, that it's very hard to say. There are different groups, there are different you know, understandings, different denominations among the Turks and different levels of education. And that somehow gets lost. And I think that's one of the I don't know whether you'd call it misconception, but uh, it's something that uh, I find sometimes problematic. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. It's something that uh, I come across as well, being a Turkish migrant, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, and I don't fit in that sometimes makes it you know, awkward yeah. uh, when you're talking to people. Because how did you end up in the Netherlands? <laughs> Family unification, I guess you'd call it. You could call it a married Dutchman. So that's how it was for family reasons, mostly. Because uh, otherwise I was teaching back at my alma mater and I was very happy in Istanbul. And I met someone uh, who's Dutch and uh, has his work here. So that's how I uh, moved here in 2003. Okay. Because what has that transition been like? Because being Turkish from Germany, living in Turkey, I imagine that's already... A weird position to be in like you're not are yeah. you seen as Turkish by people in Istanbul um, I was I, I didn't have an issue in that sense I think when we went back I was 16 and my sister was um, 11 12 and I think it was quite hard on her um, what was hard for me is I went back and I started at the German high school in Istanbul which is a very elite school mm -hmm. and uh, and what was hard for me was not necessarily, you know, uh, literature or the course, geography, the courses that were taught in Turkish, because certain courses are taught in Turkish at these schools and other courses are taught in German. Um, but because it's such a competitive and uh, a strong high school, I had uh, a harder time with math and physics and chemistry. Uh, so I had to work hard, uh, you know, to survive. And I was, and I always had thought of myself as a good student, but all of a sudden, you know, uh, yeah. you're an okay student. And, uh, and that was hard back in uh, Turkey. And I think another, you know, from a social perspective, what I found very hard is um, the kids in my class had a different sense of humor. Uh, you yeah. know, I wasn't laughing at the same things. And, and you learn that. And over time I did, and I had a great time and made good friends, but uh, um, socially it was very different. Yeah. And, and I had been living in Germany in a village of 2000 people and I moved to a city with uh, millions of people. Uh, those kind of things were, I think, big transitions uh, for me yeah. at that point. And, but it was also very exciting to, you know, discover Istanbul, to discover Turkey, um, 
during that time period in the 1980s that was yeah so it's been a while cool and then you moved again you've been a migrant yourself in multiple settings basically in your own life yeah because how was it then to go from istanbul to the u.s yeah, I mean, now it's much more common to go to the U.S. Then at that time, it was rather unusual. I mean, when I look back at it, I called my mother once a week. Uh, now, you know, we FaceTime anytime. And uh, um, and I didn't go back the first year because tickets were expensive and I was a graduate student. And uh, those kind of things were quite challenging. And it, it was kind of, you know, it, it really expanded my horizon. And it also... The U.S. experience also corrupts you in many ways, you know, that you see there's no limit to certain things, um, you know, in terms of research, you can do anything or you can find anything. Um, so it was, uh, but it, it's been, an, it was an amazing experience, but it was, uh, you know, the U.S. is a different ballgame, still is. And, uh, but at that time, even more, yeah. if you compare it to now, now it's much easier and much more doable uh, than it was quite a thing to, to go. Yeah. Because how have your own personal experiences influenced your research? Because the topics seem very closely related almost. They are. I think um, they are. Um, I'm not sure how they've influenced. It's hard to discern, to find that when you're the person of how it has influenced. But I think uh, that I've always had a soft spot for migration, I guess, is comes from that. Also, my family history because um, my mother's family is from Iran and my father's family is from Romania. So they migrated back to Istanbul during, you know, when the Ottoman Empire was shrinking, the grandparents did. Um, so it's also in the family. And then uh, um, that I always have an eye for migration issues and about integration, the social fabric, the discussions around it. Um, somehow I'm more alert to that. Um, I don't know whether it has, um, I guess I'm a bit more critical. That's what happens that if it, because you live through it yourself and you experience it yourself when people pass judgments that, uh, uh, you want to respond to that or you want to write about that. That's where it's coming back. I think um, that's where I see it. Uh, but other than that, uh, and the EU, of course, this whole discussion of, uh, you know, the enlargement and, uh, and I started writing about that when no, but not many people were writing about that, um, about Turkey and the EU. And uh, yeah, I guess it's almost natural if you're a Turk who's gr grown up in Germany, goes, goes back to Istanbul, and then you have to, um, there's a German word for it, you have to confront that uh, Europe and the West somehow mentally but also in your research i guess yeah um they have to write about it you feel like because what do you experience how would do they compare to you when you say like the west and and, and turkey or not yeah i mean you just it's it's more now than ever when i look at politics this whole issue about you know the secular identity of turks the western identity or non-western identity and that relates also to Turkey's, you know, European journey, its relations with the U.S., um, that um, Turkey somehow has always been in the middle. And um, so, um, and I think 
uh, one of the things that has all that have always bothered me is this whole discussion around you know is it religion is it culture is it this is it that you know uh and somehow you want to engage with that and uh, uh, look at it you know does turkey fit or what kind of parameters do you use when you're talking about turkey's accession yeah. do you use norms do you use economic costs and benefits uh or do you use kinship what do you use yeah um, and um, is re religion really an obstacle? But then you also have to look at the European side and look at what the project is about and see where, where they come together, I guess, or whether they can come together or not. Uh, and right now, uh, you know, um, probably not. But who knows, you know, in 50 years, things may look very different. Yeah. And are you still working uh, on research related to this? or uh, Not as much, because uh, EU-Turkish relations are pretty much at a standstill yeah. uh, right now. So, um, But I'm now starting something that I'm trying to work on is more on the... And that has to do more with my being here, I think, is issues around diversity. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very much, the, you know, uh, I'm starting out on it and looking at the diversity discourse. And I would like to compare with Netherlands and Germany about how they're tackling issues around diversity. Okay. Um, but also in uh, different spheres like universities versus other public spaces. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, the nice example or the, well, maybe not nice, but the intriguing example here is the US and how that you know, discussion is uh, done in, in Europe when you talk about diversity. Yeah. What do you include? What do you tackle? And how do you implement that? Yeah, because what differences do you see when you look at the Netherlands, Germany, the US? I mean, it's very early, like I said. I mean, the US has experimented a lot with it. And, uh, and it's, you know, there is no correct answer. There's no right way of doing it. Um, but there is a concern about, for example, hiring or um, having, you know, uh, when you're looking at student or teacher profiles or admissions policies, uh, there's a commitment to diversity. Uh, and how you do that is can be very problematic, whether you do that through quotas uh, mm -hmm. or you just have, you know, um, a verbal commitment, uh, but you use the same criteria. Um, and in Europe, it's 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 still at I think we're still at the beginning of it almost. Um, we see it now a lot in the Netherlands, especially in European universities, also Dutch universities. Now they're all putting the blurb in, uh, and they are recruiting diversity officers. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, and I'm curious about, you know, how are you going to do it uh, without trampling on somebody's, you know, because it's it's very sensitive. Yeah. Who do you include? Who do you not include? And on what basis? Um, and how do you frame that? Yeah. Hmm? Say again? Those categories, those boxes, basically. Yeah, exactly. What? Yeah. And uh, so that's what I would like to look into. But um, uh, but they're, they're difficult issues, I think. And then you have the traditional migrant groups, but then you have other groups as well that would fall under diversity policies. And how do you reconcile that if okay. you have people that belong to multiple boxes? Or groups, whatever you call that. Yeah. And that's what I'm curious about and would like to look into. But uh, like I said, I, I mean, for now, um, in, I suspect there will be differences between the Netherlands and Germany because there are also differences between, with, in terms of their migration policies. So I suspect also in their diversity policies, there will be differences. How do the migration policies differ? Uh, they do uh, in terms of, you know, um, I think uh, 
um, they have a different history and um, and uh, it's more I think the the Dutch are a bit kinder and gentler at times with their migrants and and the Germans are a bit rougher I don't know how else to explain that but um, that um, give an example of that sorry Can you give an example um, in terms of let me think of where uh, that would be. I mean, for a long time, in uh, when you looked at that, the Dutch were more into multiculturalism, whereas the Germans um, were more limited in that. But they did experiment with that as well. Or um, when you look at the welfare state, um, that it's a bit stricter now in Germany, I would argue, whereas in the Netherlands it's not as strict. Um, comparatively and there there are people who've, who've been who are writing about that and saying well this model is better and that model is better um, but um, also in terms of language or practice of religion uh, or um, religious organizations or uh, funding of religious activities there are all kinds of categories that you can look at and the and I think I tend to think that the Dutch are a bit uh, gentler and kinder uh, or more relaxed, um, and uh, um, yeah, which one is better? I don't know. Um, but no, those are the things where you see different policies. Yeah. Um, no, each will have its benefits and its disadvantages. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Both uh, they're different, but uh, yeah, there are pluses and minuses to both. Yeah, because um, you right now you teach a class about European integration at UCU, as well as um, what other. Yeah. I teach, um, well, I can tell you what, what is coming up in the fall is international organizations, mm -hmm. uh, state of the art in political science, and then uh, comparative politics. And then in the spring, it's European integration and again, state of the art. Yeah. And their um, comparative politics is an introductory course. Um, state of the art in political science is a second year course that covers, you know, the core, the main field international organizations and european integration are third year courses more advanced more senior courses and um because well you see you it's a very small college 750 students half of them come from abroad classes are relatively small on average 20 students in the classroom i imagine you must have some nice discussions with people from all over the world in your classroom taking something they probably feel very strongly about i imagine they do and it's 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 quite a luxury or a uh, you know it's very I feel very privileged in the sense that if you walk into a comparative politics course that you have people from all over the world it also keeps you on your toes because uh, you will have people from the countries you're lecturing about so you need to keep up to date and you need to know and I, I always say you know correct me if I'm wrong um, but it's uh, there will inevitably be someone who's lived there or been there or experienced something related to that. Um, but it makes it extremely colorful and, uh, and fun at times, but also controversial. Yeah. Uh, that uh, can also be. So it's a bit, you know, a balancing act sometimes during the debates, but it, it works out fine. Um, Is there like any controversial moment that comes to mind? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we had a, I think it was last year, where I had a, a discussion on the headscarf. Um, 
and, uh, and I think it was a presentation on uh, migrants in France and it was a, uh, a boy who was presenting and then uh, uh, he actually defended the right to wear a headscarf and criticized the French state. And it was interesting that uh, there was a girl from a country that um, had headscarves as a, as a policy and allowed for it and uh, promoted it that she was very critical of that and she said uh, headscarves are a, a tool for oppression um, and uh, you know no matter what you believe you just you know there is no right or wrong but you have to have to be able to have a healthy discussion on it um, and it worked out fine I think uh, it's better when it comes from the audience than from me yeah. Uh, and then it's a it's a it's a good discussion yeah. uh, and religious freedoms are always uh, you know just an ongoing discussion it doesn't yeah. end. and uh, how do you keep the discussion in class maybe not comfortable or pleasant those would be the wrong words but how do you make sure that it doesn't escalate what i do say at the very beginning of the semester always is that um what what we discuss stays here um, I mean, of course, you can talk about it, but it's not, you know, if you have a criticism, then you bring that up in the classroom. And if you don't feel comfortable bringing that up in the classroom, then come talk to me. Um, and that I do not, we don't censor ourselves. But that doesn't mean that it is a license to insult others. Uh, so no personal, you know, criticism, but um, openly and that you try to address the audience in general, not necessarily one person that you... Uh, um, so that's what I say, that we don't have political codes. Um, and that can be very difficult at times because we do get also, um, especially with exchange students that are used to different norms in, in their countries, in their classrooms, um, find that difficult, that you can say anything and everything. But I think that is part of, a, of having a good, healthy learning experience that you're able to talk about everything uh and if you're not that you you know i don't know i think it's 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 important yeah and uh, that's how i bring it up and um that we have to have an open discussion yeah but and if, if you don't understand something or you feel insulted by something that you then say that and then we address that yeah uh, i think that's um but it is, it's, it's become more difficult also over time because we're now much more mixed uh, and much more sensitive as well, I think, uh, that we not, I notice as well. Yeah. I have to be careful and also watch body language and uh, uh, approach people that are quiet or uh, yeah. don't participate as much. Do you have like a favorite class to teach on a particular topic or a method or...? Um, I usually like teaching about uh, political parties. Okay. <laughs> I like talking about political parties. I like talking about voting behavior. Because um, what about voting behavior? I, I don't know. I think it's about how we make our choices and how we... But you have that in economics as well, I think. You know, you can explain it in so many different ways. Uh, but it could be also something very random that you saw that person on a debate and liked them, not even listening to their arguments. So, uh, or is it really a rational choice? Or is it determined by your family circumstances or where you live? Um, so I find that, uh, somehow I find that uh, intriguing and I also find it intriguing how parties respond to that. So you make your choices, but they're also, you know, it's sort of a, 
a market um, and there are creatures that are uh, and that will sound very familiar to you that they're rational creatures that are adjusting and adapting um, to vote choices well economists like to believe that they exist <laughs> that they actually do is a different story yeah uh, <laughs> yeah yeah, that's the case. So that's, I like talking about political parties and uh, voting, I think. That, uh, that is one of my, uh, but yeah, there are many things that I like, but that, that's, I find, a, a core thing uh, and a core part of democracy. So uh, yeah. that's why I think I like it a lot. Because how would you compare, if you look at the Dutch political system with, I think in our last national election, there are 28 political parties taking part or something like that. How would you... Because yeah, if you're looking at comparative politics, how would that compare to other countries that you know well? Yeah, I mean, I think I, um, I use Germany a lot in my cases and I use uh, the US a lot. Those are the cases that I'm, uh, I've studied a lot and I've also lived in. And I think uh, what I look quite a bit at is the electoral system and how that uh, has an impact on uh, what we get. And if you have, you know, a system like a per, which the Dutch have a perfect proportional representational system, uh, you get a more, you know, the word sounds negative, it isn't necessarily a more fragmented system uh, where you get multiple numerous parties. And if you have, uh, you know, a winner take all kind of system uh, like the States, you get two significant parties that uh, matter. And then there's the German system, which is in between. That used to be a two and a half party system for a long time, but now is becoming closer to the Dutch system. Yeah. And that is a system where they use two elect a combination of two electoral systems. So what I you know like to look at is how does the electoral system, the rules of the game basically, yeah. uh, affect uh, the parties in the party picture. Yeah. And so that's one thing. Um, but and of course, does that for the Netherlands? For instance, how, how does that, what impact does that have on, on the parties? And the that you get a lot of different parties, a lot of parties you get. And I think you get a more individualized political culture, but it, it is, it's, it goes both ways, I think. It also, you know, having a very individualized political culture also affects the number of political parties. Um, but what also, there are other layers that matter as well, you know, how consensual the society is or how confrontational it is. Um, because the parties in the Netherlands, to a certain extent, can work together, uh, which you can see from the coalition politics. Um, so you get a lot of parties and you get, you know, uh, something that is very, used to be very unusual, like a stem visor, keys compass, where people tr are trying to decide which way they should vote. These are uh, voting advice application tools that... Uh, uh, and that's very unusual, I think. Uh, and I make students take one of those tests because now they exist pretty much for every country. Yeah. But the Dutch are very comfortable with that, that you have this tool, online tool, that you answer questions and then uh, it tells you, you know, who you could be voting for yeah. and uh, or should be voting for. Uh, and that's, that's unique to the Dutch, I think, that there are millions of people who do that. Oh, is it? I didn't even realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very uh, uh, unusual in that sense that it's so common. Yeah, I guess it comes also with the system a little bit, as you were describing. I mean, yeah. you need help. To figure parties. out. There are too many of them. There's How do you? Many, yeah. I mean, if you choose one of the big ones, fine. But uh, many of these smaller ones. Um, what is the economic program of the animal party, or uh, you know, 
you need to figure that out. Yeah. Yes, for those of you who are not familiar with the Dutch system, we do indeed have a political party that is basically dedicated to animal rights. Um, also, of course, yeah. concerned with all kinds of other issues because they've been yeah. in our government for at least 10 years, I think. Yeah, they've um, been around. And they have been also in a very critical role. They don't have many seats, but they can be quite, you know, they can introduce bills that others rally around. And uh, so uh, they may be small, but still they can be significant yeah and yeah, that's how the system works in the netherlands yeah you can be small but have a huge impact actually yeah exactly. for sure yeah okay um let me see if you um because we've all been teaching online now for about two months yeah how has it been for you um it um how has it been um these are not the discussions that you can have online you mean uh, how it's been or oh 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 yeah we haven't yeah we haven't i haven't had any because we taught until um this the break and many of our debates had taken place in the classroom so there was already a feel for one another uh, but i don't know how you know the debates will be in the fall if we start online because somehow i think that the real life element is quite helpful when you're having a debate yeah. um you pick up on clues that you online may be harder to pick up on um how is how was the online teaching overall i found it difficult i think one because i'm not a technical genius so it was uh, it was rather um I, I, you know it felt like a big challenge to figure out everything um, but eventually it worked out all right. Um, but I do like, I don't like the big uh, classroom settings online. I prefer the one-on-one -on -one or talking to groups yeah. or smaller scale uh, things um, that I, because then I can figure out what's going on better, I feel. Um, so it's, 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 it went okay, but I think it was also a big burden on our students. I think it was quite hard and they managed really, really well. I was very, very impressed. Uh, it cannot be easy that you're far away from home and then you're stuck in your dorm room or in your room if you went back and you're trying to follow classes, do new assignments that we had to reinvent for this new sphere. So I've been mostly very impressed with them. Yeah, completely agree. Without the structure that would normally be in place, without the things that would often be motivational, the classroom discussions, the social activities on campus, with all of that gone. Yeah. It's a good experience for sure. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So um, so it's been a, a bit of a mixed experience in that sense. Uh, very difficult and uh, we don't have the usual clues that we can pick up on. But um, I think we all managed one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it comes anywhere near the level we usually can offer. Um, cause I feel the same as you. I feel very one handed. Like I can't read people's body language. Yeah. I'm missing the little jokes you can make normally yeah. little back and forth. It yeah. becomes much more really about knowledge transfer and a lot less about all the relationships and coaching and social yeah. elements that are normally around it. And those are actually what I think makes teaching effective. Yeah. yeah. I miss that. Yeah. And that was, that's actually our forte. Because we're we're teaching in small settings and we benefit from that, yeah. uh, and now we're you know um, you know looking uh, at a screen. Yeah, 
No, I have the same. I have a lot of discussions in the introduction course I teach in the fall. And I'm dreading if I have to do it online again, because I really don't know how to go about yeah. it if we do that. But uh, yeah. yeah, we all have to think about that over the summer, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. You've been in the Netherlands now for how long? 17 years. Okay. What's the weirdest thing about the Netherlands for you? Um, yeah, I'll probably end up saying cliches. What's the weirdest thing? Um, I'm not, I'm not sure I would call it weird. I think uh, I still, you know, uh, there's certain, I'm, I'm a Mediterranean at heart and there are certain things that I love about Mediterranean culture, like warm food or, um, you know, and when I see these big guys with these big milk glasses and their sandwiches, <laughs> it doesn't do it for me. I, I have to have a nice warm meal and, a, you know, and afterwards a Turkish coffee or a tea. Uh, that makes me happy. But I have a thing for food. But that's um, so that or the um, that in, in social relations, the spontaneity is uh, less there. But, you know, maybe that's also working life. But, you know, that you cannot just ring somebody's bell and say, hey, are you home? Shall we have a cup of coffee? Um, or that you have to plan it and you have to. But these are, you know, known things about the Dutch. Um, but there are also things that I love about the Dutch because they really have a big heart for, you know, the underdog or they, they're, um, they're open minded and they're, they're curious. And uh, that's also Dutch, I think. Well, that's lovely to hear. <laughs> no, but uh, sometimes they're a bit too direct for my taste. Uh, but it, it's also, you know, maybe it's, there's also some learning that I can do from that. Um, yeah, it's the interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, that's also, of course, a cliche because it's true. Um, and it's interesting because of what you were saying earlier as well about having those open class discussions and having exchange students coming in not used to it. Yeah. I think there are a lot of things in the Netherlands that aren't necessarily taboo yeah. or that aren't necessarily something, well, I think losing face isn't so much a thing in the Netherlands, which doesn't mean it doesn't exist, no. but to a lesser degree than in no. other countries. You can have a discussion yeah. where you're diametrically opposed yeah. and then afterwards go and get a beer and it's perfectly fine because it's not, it never becomes personal. No. Or they're passionate about protecting your right you know, to be politically incorrect or to say what you want to say. And that's, and I think that's important. You may not like what the person is saying, but you, he or she still has the right to say that. Yeah. As long as it's not, uh, you know, personally insulting or goes, you know, whatever. Yeah. So and I always find it, I mean, I find it a fascinating discussion also because you, you see it at UCU more than in other places in the Netherlands, I think, because there is so much more variety in where people come from. And also still really don't know where I stand on it because I can see see the points of both sides like on the one hand you know, the balancing act i think is, yeah it depends on the context and the situation but uh it's not an easy one it doesn't come naturally uh, so you know we're figuring it out in every classroom or in every group you have to reinvent it or rediscuss it or that's what i feel yeah, yeah. but yeah so let me think what else is weird about the dutch <laughs> no, I can think. I'm, I'm sure you can think of lots of things. Yeah, I mean the the, the I mean, in these Corona times, I guess it's the the obsession about rules. But then uh, you know, 
um, getting too caught up in the rules and not seeing uh, things that don't make sense uh, in a rule-based world um, and uh, those kind of things, I guess. Um, uh, but it's it's very much the cliches uh, that uh, sometimes do you know come back in these kind of things. Yeah, of course. And then uh, you already mentioned uh, food being important. You have an amazing Instagram account where you post everything that you bake. It always makes me really hungry because it's yeah, you're a really good baker. So <laughs> for any students listening, ask her about her favorite recipe. Maybe I'll actually just do that right now. What's like your favorite recipe? What's my favorite recipe? But, you know, I love to bake, but I've uh, switched to gluten-free uh, baking uh, for myself, mostly for health reasons. And um, I love things with almond flour, which have, of course, a lot of calories, but they're gluten-free. So those kind of things, like, uh, I love. I love macarons. Um, yes. I'm a big fan uh, of that, which is a very challenging recipe. Um, and getting it right. And... Uh, uh, I love those kind of things. And uh, we used to, um, I taught uh, European integration with a professor from the UU, Leo Pell, and we at the end, and he also loves to bake. And at the end of every semester, we would, if we had country projects, we would bake for from that country or for those regions, we would cover that. And we would bake, you know, Italian delicacies or German Streusel Kuchen and Käsekuchen. It was always a feast at the end of the semester. <laughs> we would make stuff from the countries and regions uh, that we had covered. Maybe so, we yeah. should put that in the course description. That will surely have a positive influence on that. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so I, uh, that's a hobby that I have on the side. It's, it's therapeutic to relax and um but ideally not to eat too much especially at this time yeah. yeah is there anything else you would still like to say or add no i think this is a fun thing to uh you know also see uh maybe uh, a different side of the teachers not necessarily just you know uh, looking beyond the teacher and seeing also the person um, and the history and the background and the story that comes with it. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's a great initiative that you have. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for doing this. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person again at some point. Same here.